0: We're just, oh no, sexual.
1: Good afternoon. Or good evening. Time is just Timothy on a little bit of ecstasy. Chase, what do you know about ecstasy? Uh, It's a little bit of you and me.
0: (laughs) Do the holidays bring you ecstasy?
1: They bring me weed, which is the same thing.
0: So other than smoking weed, how was your Christmas?
1: Uh, My Christmas was great. I watched Holiday in Handcuffs starring Melissa Joan Hart and Mario Lopez. That movie's batshit insane. She kidnaps him, and then, like, nobody believes it's, he's kidnapped, and then they fall in love. Stockholm Syndrome. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, what did you do for Christmas, Richard?
0: Well, he did work all day on Christmas with you. Oh, yeah. What a glorious day. It wasn't too bad, but Christmas Eve, I hosted a get-together. We watched Christmas movies, ate way too much food, and then ended the night in the queerest way possible by judging naked bodies while watching Naked Attraction on HBO Max. If you haven't seen this show, I highly suggest it. It's You get to see many dicks, many balls, many vaginas, and a whole lot of pubic hair. And judging is one of my favorite pastimes, so it's really great.
1: Mine as well. Speaking of pubic hair... It's time to talk about the International Lesbian Information Service.
0: This should be short and sweet. An international organization which aimed at fostering international lesbian organizing, the International Lesbian Information Service, was started within the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association in 1980. ILIS decided to split from ILGA in 1981 due to the lack of visibility of lesbians in the gay movement, as well as cost of participation to the ILGA conferences and lack of inclusivity towards post-colonial issues. The ILIS conferences... Following the separation included intersectional workshops on racism, lesbophobia, and post-colonial issues, or the historical period or state of affairs representing the aftermath of Western colonialism. Most directly, the term also is used to describe the concurrent project to reclaim and rethink the history and agency of people subordinated under various forms of imperialism.
1: At the conferences held across an impressive 18 countries, they had five basic demands. One, we have the unconditional right to control our own bodies. Two, we have a right to education that is not sexist or heterosexist and which includes positive information about lesbian lifestyle. 3. We need the right to self organization. 4. All governments must repeal legislation that criminalizes us or discriminates against us. 5. Therefore, all governments must pass human rights legislation to protect individuals against discrimination based on color, class, creed, sex, and sexual preference.
0: The International Lesbian Information Service was represented at the 1985 United Conference on the Status of Women after the decision to reach out to non-Western lesbians. In 1986, they fundraised to gain the participation of lesbians who came from post-colonial countries and spoke about political exile for lesbians of all countries. They faced criticism because their conferences were specifically meant for outed lesbians and didn't take into account the oppressive regimes that might keep people in the closet and the fact that they were presenting Western countries as saviors to third world countries, which is nothing new for the Western world.
1: ILLIS seems to have only lasted 18 years, with their final newsletter published in 1998 and their activities and conferences ending in the late 90s as well. Well, there you go. It existed. But much like the Society for Human Rights discussed on last week's episode, The International Lesbian Information Service didn't accomplish very much, if anything. This queer history uh, is not very interesting, but it did happen, so we should talk about it. The most notable thing that Illis ever did was inspire people to form their own clubs outside of it, because nothing was really being accomplished other than making event planners money. I'm not going
0: to speak on this topic, because I think enough gay men have spoken over everyone else in the queer community.
1: Then how are we going to do this podcast?
0: (laughs) Oh, this is the Chase Show now.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Chase Show, where we're going to talk about decarbing weed using only a hairdryer.
0: (laughs) And Carrie Elways.
1: And Carrie Elways. Welcome to the Carrie Elways Stan podcast. I'm your host, Stan.
0: (laughs) All right, Chase, let's talk about horror news. I think that'll be a little more exciting for the listeners. (laughs) Fair enough. A new slasher film from Neon Noir has wrapped production. Brute, 1976, will be reminiscent of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes. Though a release hasn't been announced, I say we can still get excited for it. Directed by Marcel Walls, Brute stars Adrian McLean, hot blonde Sarah French, Dazelle Yvette, and Adam Bucci, four actors who, according to IMDb, I have not seen before. The film follows two women as they travel to a photo shoot in the desert and stumble across an abandoned mine in an abandoned town called Savage. But is it abandoned? The town has a violent history and a family of masked psychopaths have claimed it as their own and fully intend to live up to its name. Seems like the perfect space for a photo shoot. Marcel's Walls says, Brute 1976 was an amazing experience to shoot. It was hot, it was dirty, and it was bloody. Three of my favorite things, and I can't wait for 2024. Messy, Messy, Scream 7, Will It Happen? The film has lost its two main actresses and now seems to have lost its director as well. On December 23rd, Christopher Landon tweeted, I guess now is as good a time as any to announce I formally exited Scream 7 weeks ago. This will disappoint some and delight others. It was a dream job that turned into a nightmare. And my heart did break for everyone involved. Everyone. But it's time to move on. I have nothing.
1: I have nothing. I just have a prolific horror directing career and millions of dollars. Pray for him.
0: I, for one, am slightly disappointed. I really enjoyed the new cast of the reboot, and it was, ex- and I was extremely excited for another installment, but I suppose we will just have to wait and see what happens. Killer Clowns from Outer Space, a and I was extremely excited for another installment, but I suppose we will just have to wait and see what happens. Killer Clowns from Outer Space, a 1988 cult horror comedy, could be in the works to become a TV series. Writer, director, and producer of the film Stephen Chiado told SFX Magazine that he and his siblings Charles and Edward have a goal to do an eight-part miniseries for streamers. We have a great concept that continues the story of our main characters, and I'm wondering why me and my brothers have never created anything together. According to Chiado, the show will follow a new group of teenagers who come upon the clowns and meet a drunk living in his van. It's Mike Tobacco, our sexy protagonist from the film. There's a big invasion and we end up on the clown planet. I actually just re-watched this film last month and it's so much fun, definitely an 80s film, and I'm excited to go to clown planet and see what they come up with with better technology and better fake blood. No running, no diving, no swimming after dark. Slated for a January 5th, 2024 theatrical release, Night Swim has received a new behind the scenes clip spotlighting producers Jason Blum and James Wan and writer and director Bryce McGuire. In Night Swim, the Waller family moves into a new house and finds that an unknown supernatural presence haunts the backyard swimming pool. The trailer with Billie Eilish's haunting Bury a Friend playing in the background fills me with dread every time I see it. Anytime I've ever been swimming at night, there is always that underlying fear of what you can't see below you, and I look forward to see how the team uses that fear to keep me on the edge of my seat. And that's all I have for horror news this week. We will do our best to keep you up to date with these and all other projects we are excited for when more information is available. Woo doggy. Chase, I am amazed that I was able to make it through that without singing.
1: I'm so proud of you.
0: Thank you. That's all I've ever needed from you. For legal reasons, for you listeners at home, we decided to remove all singing from our podcast.
1: Coming up next, our rendition of Yellow Submarine by the Beatles.
0: (laughs) No, actually, let's talk about our queer icon this week, Marlene Dietrich.
1: Born Marie Magdalene Dietrich on December 27th, 1901. Her family called her Lena, so when she started performing, she combined that with her first name to become Marlene. With a career spanning from 1910 to 1980, she was an actress and a singer. Her performance as Lola Lola in The Blue Angel, 1930, gained her international acclaim in a contract with Paramount Pictures. But Richard, why is Marlene Dietrich our queer icon?
0: You know what, Chase? I have 11 reasons for you why Marlene Dietrich is a queer icon. First... She uses her glamorous persona and exotic looks to become one of the highest-paid actresses in the 30s. She performed in many Hollywood films, working with the likes of Alfred Hitchcock, Billy Wilder, Orson Welles, and Josef von
1: Sternberg. I've heard of some of those. Number two. Also a star of the stage, Marlene worked mostly as a cabaret artist from the early 1950s to the mid-1970s. In 53, she was offered $30,000 a week, which is about $377,000 in today's money, and approximately $1 million in tomorrow's money, (laughs) to perform at the Sahara Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip, where she wore a daringly sheer nude dress, which gave the illusion of transparency and attracted a lot of publicity. I would have been attracted to the publicity. She was also contracted to perform at the Café de Paris in London.
0: Number three, her musical arranger Burt Bacharach arranged her songs to help disguise her limited vocal range and helped her to perform her songs to maximum dramatic effect. A king.
1: I wish I had a Burt Bacharach, I have a very limited vocal range.
0: But it's beautiful what you have.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Number four, she would start her shows in her body-hugging dresses and change to top hat and tails for the second half, performing songs usually associated with male singers. American drag artist Sasha Velour cites Diedrich as a big inspiration due to her gender-bending fashion.
0: Number five, having strong political convictions, Marlene was not afraid to speak her mind. In the late 1930s, she created a fund with Billy Wilder to help Jews and dissidents to escape Germany.
1: Number six, she put her entire salary from Night Without Armor in the amount of $450,000 into escrow to help the refugees.
0: Number seven, in 1939, she became an American citizen and renounced her German citizenship. And in 1941, became one of the first public figures to help sell war bonds and toured the U.S. from January 1942 to September 1943 and sold more war bonds than any other star. In 1944 and 1945, she toured with the USO and performed for Allied troops in Algeria, Italy, the U.K., France, the Netherlands, and Germany, despite the obvious danger. She said she did it out of decency.
1: Number eight, a total badass. She also recorded a number of songs in German that were designed to demoralize enemy soldiers. She received the Medal of Freedom November 1947 for her extraordinary record entertaining overseas troops during the war.
0: And now number nine for the juicy details. Marlene was a bisexual who was fluent in German, English, and French. She enjoyed the thriving gay bars and drag balls of 1920s Berlin, including Mali und Igel, a bar run by Elsa Conrad. And on top of that, she defied conventional gender roles by boxing at a boxing studio in Berlin.
1: Number 10, though she was married to Rudolf Sieber and had one child, Maria Riva. She used her sexuality to her advantage and had numerous affairs throughout her lifetime with both men and women. Some of those affairs were short-lived while others lasted decades and they often overlapped. She told her husband about almost all of them, letting him read her love letters. Of the affairs were Gary Cooper, who was having another affair with Mexican actress Lupe Velez who said, if I had the opportunity to do so, I would tear out Marlene Diedrich's eyes.
0: And Billy Lynn's
1: approves. She also had an affair with Jimmy Stewart, which ended in a pregnancy that she aborted. Joan Crawford's husband, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., George Bernard Shaw, John F. Kennedy, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, and Frank Sinatra.
0: She was all over the place. Number 11. Dietrich used the phrase sewing circle to describe the underground closeted lesbian and bisexual film actresses and their relationships in Hollywood. In Marlene's sewing circle were Anne Warner, Lily Demita, Claudette Colbert, and Dolores Del Rio. In Paris, she had an affair with Suzanne Ballet, a coach and cabaret hostess that she met in 1936. She also had an affair with Cuban-American writer Mercedes de Acosta, who claimed to be Greta Garbo's lover.
1: Diedrich died of kidney failure at her flat in Paris on May 6, 1992, age 90. Because of her World War II efforts, she lived like a soldier and would like to be buried like a soldier, with her three medals displayed at the foot of her coffin. She was buried in her birthplace Berlin near her family at the house she was born.
0: What a queen, Marlene Dietrich.
1: What I'm hearing is Marlene Dietrich is the reason that bisexuals are stereotyped as cheaters because holy <laughs> shit, holy to shit. to have so many
0: affairs and like be open with her husband about them and like she was sexually active into her 70s. That's
1: some niche porn right there.
0: Hey, we don't yuck anyone's yum around here. Chase, should we continue talking about kinks and uh, <laughs> sexual deviance? Are you ready to give a quick storyline for Black Christmas 2019?
1: Yes, it, though it's not very quick. Also, we should warn the listeners. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about sexual assault in this summary because that is what the movie is about. Black Christmas 2019. The film opens with an 1819 quote from Calvin Hawthorne, the founder of Hawthorne College, a college as real as the one on my resume. Man possesses powers so formidable that they can only be considered supernatural. With a proper education, men can wield these powers and go forth into the world. And that's the plot. Cut to fraternity men chanting in robes. They are surrounding the candlelit bust of Calvin Hawthorne. Women's screams are dubbed over the flames and that's also the plot. The camera pulls out from the flames to reveal a cozy sorority living room. The women are having a really great time and actually seem to like each other. Where's Lindsay, asks Una, and gives Lindsay a call. She's at the library, but about to head home for Christmas. Too bad, because Una got Lindsay a dildo for Secret Santa, because Lindsay's had mysteriously gone missing. And that's a good fucking friend right there. They hang up, and Lindsay walks through the twinkling, stowing night to the train station. Ding, ding, she receives a notification from Yip Yap. It's a DM. From the founder of Hawthorne College? Weird. He sent a shitty joke and the punchline is, you're about to get murdered, which isn't super clever, to be honest. And uh uh-oh, a man on his phone is walking behind Lindsay. Worried the message is from him, she puts her keys between her fingers like Wolverine, prepared to tear a bitch up. A smart move and something our listeners should remember. She turns suddenly ready to attack, but he turned down a street and there's no one behind her, which isn't true for much longer because a cloaked man in a black mask appears out of nowhere with strong I'm gonna kill you energy. Lindsay runs, not very fast, and bangs on a random door, begging for help, but no help comes. She checks over her shoulder, the masked man is gone, and definitely not hiding behind the large inflatable Christmas decorations that are filling the yard. To be safe, she calls one of the other sorority women, but the phone is on silent, and nobody can hear the buzz over the sound of the party, which is probably how we'll all die. The killer pops out from his hiding place and disappears to another one. Lindsay runs to another door, begging for help. This time, someone opens the door ready to assist the murderer. It's another cloak dude. He grabs an icicle and stabs the fuck out of her. A perfect crime and I can't even fault him. Ooh, icicle murder.
0: (laughs) That's not even a crime at this point.
1: Nature killed you. Like, you had it coming. The killer drags her body away, leaving a haunting angel in the snow. The next morning, our protag Riley wakes up to sorority sister Franny, who somehow lost her diva cup. Riley throws her a pad.
0: Wait, I don't know much about periods, but doesn't that mean there's blood
1: in her pants? Puts an ugly decorative comb in her hair and starts the day. Sister Helena catches her on the stairs and says, I watched a video of you singing. You should be performing with us tonight. Riley's like, um, no, but take this ugly hair thing for good luck and goes off to class. There, sexy Professor Gelson quotes a writer who said some sexist shit and singles out Riley, asking her what the author meant. Riley said, he means women live in a man's world whether we like it or not. And Gelson is like, aha, a woman actually wrote that, so sexism is actually fake. And my syllabus only having white cishet male writers is totally fine. It's not like they're secret rooms where men are gathering to plan to kill women. And that's the plot. He ends the class by scolding Riley about the petition to get him fired.
0: Hey, I'm an asshole, but I'm hot. Pity me.
1: Outside, Sister Chris is gathering signatures to get him fired, which is fine, because he's super fine, and he can come live with me. It turns out Chris is also super hot and cool, and does this kind of thing a lot. Last year, she successfully petitioned to have the bust of Calvin Hawthorne moved from the Admin Building to a frat, because he owned slaves in the North and practiced dark arts where he sacrificed disobedient women, and we all see where this is going. Chris and another sister Marty escort Riley to her job at the campus coffee shop, where she eye fucks a cute AV geek as Chris says a bunch of super accurate stuff about how we shouldn't normalize men getting away with despicable shit just because they can. AV guy offers to sign the petition to respectfully try to get laid. Riley is into it because drinking a cup of respect women juice is always a good play. On the way out, AV cutie holds open the door for a bunch of people, including the bearer of bad news. A frat dildo orders an iced coffee in the winter, blatantly co-opting queer culture, and drops a bomb. Brian Hutley, the man who sexually assaulted Riley, will be at the DKO frat show for their song later. He makes a joke about consent, and Chris throws a drink in his face. That can't
0: be his first load to the face.
1: He seems to rethink his stance on consent. He walks away. Later, at DKO, sisters Chris, Marty, and Jessie get ready for their performance, Riley sits in a corner, and Marty's compact boyfriend, Smoosh, takes their picture. But wait, where's Helena? Drinking somewhere. Riley gets a bad feeling. She goes looking for her, but stumbles across a secret room where cloaked frat brothers are anointing pledges with gross black goo that's dripping from Calvin Hawthorne's bust. Take your daddy goo, or you won't grow up to be big and strong. And we all know where this is going. Except Riley, who shuts the door and keeps looking for Helena. She's across the hall, super sloshed, and tries to tell a frat bro no to sex. Shockingly, he's not stopping, so here, O'Reilly bursts in to pull her away. He gets mad and says, you bitches are all a bunch of teases, and Brian Hutley would have never done that thing you accused him of that I was about to do 30 seconds ago. Helena, like all of us in the audience, vomits in response. Riley loads Helena into an Uber and tells the other she went home sick. They say, okay, so you have to sing, but Riley is not about it.
0: Where's Gretchen Wieners when you need her?
1: Uh, under the house. Chris says you can't sit on the sidelines forever just because you were hurt. You have to fight or you'll shrink away into nothing. Like Earth's Glaciers or My Tolerance for Swifties.
0: Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed on The Queers Have Eyes are not those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent.
1: Riley chooses Fight. The sisters perform a glorious parody of Christmas classic Up on the Rooftop, calling DKO out for sexual assault. You should look it up. Up in the Frat House, Black Christmas, 19. I'll wait. Oh, you think I'm playing? No, it is seriously so good. Go to YouTube, Up in the Frat House, Black Christmas, 19. I'll wait. They leave to booze and applause. QAV guy Landon follows them out to congratulate Riley and flirt awkwardly. Chris Wingwoman's like a champ and gets Riley to invite Landon over for dinner tomorrow. At the sorority house, Vomity Helena gets a yip yap from Calvin Hawthorne that says, Our time is near. There's a creak in a hall. She checks. It's nothing, but a cloaked dude does appear behind her. Cut to black. That night, Riley has a nightmare about what Brian Hutley did slipping her roofies and wakes up to a text. It's Una. Lindsay never showed up at Mima's on account of being icicle stabbed. Enter perky pretty sister Franny to say congrats on the performance, look after my cat, and see you after break. Then she kisses Riley on the forehead and bounces away, taking my heart with her. Riley heads downstairs where the women and Smoosh are hustling to get out the door to pick out a Christmas tree. But Riley says she found black goo on the cat and is worried it means DKO is planning to retaliate. Chris suggests that's why all their shit has gone missing. Smoosh cuts them short, worried he won't get a tree girthy enough to satisfy his craving.
0: Anything's a dildo if you're brave enough.
1: Upstairs, Franny finds her cat to say goodbye, and a cloaked man finds her neck to also say goodbye to breathing. At the tree farm, Riley gets a call about Helena not making it home. Riley is worried, but on the bright side, Smoosh found a girthy one to take home. Now home, Riley decides to walk to campus security to report the missing girls. The camera pans across poor, dead Franny hidden away on the balcony. On the way, she receives another sketchy yip-yip. Calvin Hawthorne needs to take a social media break, I think. Once at the Admin Building, Riley runs into Landon, but is in no mood to talk to dudes who don't have social media, even though that is the greenest of all flags. Riley finds campus security, and what luck! It's a middle-aged man bitter about his lot in life, a notoriously helpful demographic. She reports the threatening DMs and missing girls, rudely interrupting his lunch.
0: Oh great, a middle-aged man who eats mayonnaise for lunch.
1: But since she doesn't have video evidence and a signed confession by the killer, he doesn't believe that there's a problem. She takes him to the DKO house anyway, and after a harrowing knock at the door followed by silence, the security guard decides that was a good day's hard work and drives back home to his ham sandwich. Riley, not to be deterred from her investigation, looks through the DKO house window in case there's some murderin' in there. Out of nowhere, a hand appears on her shoulder, causing her to jump back. It's Professor Gelson, who can stand behind me anytime. Her jump knocks some papers from his hand. Definitely not lists of women to kill. No, don't look! He proceeds to lecture her on the rudeness of the performance last night and how it might hurt the image of his precious college, then says the video of it includes illegal defamation. Gelson offers to let her into the frat house, but she nopes out of that, which is a good call and shows amazing restraint. I, for one, would have readily succumbed to that siren song. At the sorority house, Jess, Chris, Marty, and Smoosh eat some ham, but Smoosh is getting pissy, though not as pissed as Riley, who storms in to yell at Chris for posting the video of the performance. Chris didn't know the video ended with Riley saying, maybe that'll teach Ryan Hutley not to rape another girl. Jessie, whose only character trait is avoiding conflict, goes upstairs to grab twinkle lights for dinner. The women argue until it's revealed that they're all getting creepy DMs from Calvin Hawthorne. You sly dog. Upstairs, Jessie finds the perfect lights to get strangled with, and then does. In the kitchen, Chris makes some hella valid points about posting the video and fighting the patriarchy, but Smoosh plays the not all men card, which rightly incenses Marty. He tells her to calm down cause he's trying to have a rational conversation and Marty kicks him out into the cold where the not all men belong. In the foyer, the sisters all get threatening DMs and Marty takes an arrow to the knee, which means her adventuring days are over. The arrow was shot by a hooded man and since there are about to be a bunch of these, I've decided to refer to them all as Mitch. Mitch chases Chris, Marty, and Riley through the house, shooting deadly arrows. They hide in a broom closet to make a plan. Riley will creep downstairs and grab a phone to call for help, while Chris tends to Marty's wounds in the closet. Slowly, Riley makes her way down the stairs, but Mitch is in the living room with the phones. She waits around a corner until she hears a door creak, and then ducks quickly behind a couch. In the closet, Chris and Marty remember Jesse went upstairs alone. Chris leaves to find her, hella dead and covered in black goo. It turns out the door creak wasn't Mitch leaving, but Smoosh appearing, remorseful for the fight. He very loudly asks Riley why she's hiding behind a couch, taking zero hints. Riley quietly pleads for him to shut the fuck up and give her his phone because there's someone in the house. He doesn't listen at all, grabs an axe, and yells that Mitch is a coward. Smoosh gets an arrow to the face. Weird that that axe didn't stop it. Mitch overpowers Riley under some mistletoe, but Riley grabs Smoosh's keys... He doesn't need them anymore and stabs mitch in the neck taking him out chris and marty barrel down the stairs as another mitch appears marty sacrifices herself so that riley and chris can run they grab a kitchen knife and hide behind a counter dying marty inches towards smoosh's phone probably wondering why he has two calculator apps chris and riley hear a door close so they creep around the counter but clearly door noises are ambiguous and mitch jumps down from the counter to attack blessed with the forethought to grab a knife they stab a mitch the campus security guard gets a call from emergency services about an attack. He races to a sorority house where he finds other sorority women stabbing other Mitches. Then another other Mitch stabs him. Riley and Chris wonder why they're covered in black goo instead of blood. They unmask Kitchen Mitch, and Riley recognizes him as the Gooby Pledge from yesterday. Another 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 Mitch shows up as Chris is grabbing the neck keys from Living Room Mitch, but Riley is over this shit and suffocates him with a bag. They finally escape to Smoosh's car. Riley tells Chris that the attacks are DKO, using dark magic, and they need to go to DKO to break the founder's bust and stop the spell. Oddly, Chris doesn't immediately accept that and heads towards the cops. Riley's like, why would the cops believe anything if they didn't believe I was raped? Which is valid. And she hops out of the car. Riley starts walking to the frat house where Landon shows up and offers to help the beat up Riley. Chris finds the other sorority women and picks them up in the car. Landon goes into DKO as a decoy and breaks a bunch of their shit to draw them out. It works. They outnumber him significantly and offer to pledge him to the frat, which I'm sure they'll accept a no for, because frat bros historically accept no really well. Riley sneaks in while they're occupied and hears a sister shouting for help. It's Helena! Riley says, you're okay now, as Helena's worried expression melts into a shitty grin. A cloaked man comes up behind Riley and knocks her out. She wakes up in the Founders Hall to Landon being anointed by the goo as the brothers chant. Professor Gelson stands before her in splendiferous purple robes and monologues. The Founder left instructions and magic to possess men and turn them into a supernatural army who plan to take over the world by silencing all the women who step out of line. A rare example of Carrie Elway's making me gag. And not in the way I'd always hoped. Apparently women who are willing to be obedient, like Helena, will be spared in this slaughter. Helena explains the black magic is why she stole all of the sister shit and begs Riley to be a good woman with her and bow to the king. But she gets her neck snapped anyway. Get wrecked, trad wife. The king Helena referred to is Brian Hutley, who's actually just some loser who never moved past college. Instead of bowing, Riley slashes his face. The bros turn around to see no evil as Brian strangles her in retaliation. As Riley's lights start to fade, the other surviving sorority girls burst in to kick some frat bro ass.
0: When did this become Buffy the Vampire Slayer?
1: Brian pins Riley, but writing past wrongs and making the story come full circle, Riley fights him off. She runs to the founder's bust and lifts it over her head. Gelson pleads pathetically for her not to smash, but she's like, I decide when I smash, and that's the plot, it shatters. Landon, who's wanted Riley to smash the whole movie, snaps out of his black magic haze, just in time to become a final girl. They lock the bros in their burning frat and escape into the snow.
0: Okay, wait, so the whole time the goo was the villain?
1: I'm pretty sure that men are the villain. And as a trans masked person, I don't feel conflicted about that at all.
0: Black Christmas 2019 has a two word tagline, slay girls. We need to remove the word slay from every Christmas horror
1: film ever. Overused as fuck. Black Christmas 2019 got a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes.
0: Very similarly, a 3.5 out of 10 on
1: IMDB. But on The Queers Have Eyes, it received a 6.5 out of 11 which is a pretty good score. I would have to agree. How did we determine that
0: score, you ask? We're gonna tell you. Traumability, 11 out of 11. We're giving it an 11 out of 11 because men and the existence of the patriarchy. If you remove the witchcraft, you still have a traumatic film about rape culture. Chase, how dumb is the protagonist?
1: Three out of 11. She's college educated and doesn't make any stupid decisions, but she does figure out the black magic was the villain and you have to be a little dumb to believe that right away. Halloween costume realness.
0: Four out of eleven. It's black cloaks and masks, but are you a Death Eater or part of the fraternity?
1: Did you even go to Juilliard?
0: Nine out of eleven for Carrie Elway's. But also I believed the sisterhood and I didn't see the twist with Helena and I would believe Riley was an abused undergrad. Daddy? Is that you?
1: 11 out of 11. Oh my god. 11 out of 11 out of 11 out of 11. Carrie Elways is the ultimate daddy with his crystal blue eyes and his ridiculously floppy hair. And he's got that accent, and I would join his cult so fast. (laughs) The fact that more people aren't Carrie Elways, frankly, makes me sick and want to die.
0: So we love Carrie Elways. How would this film be to stream and cream? We've given it a 2 out of 11. Consent is sexy, but this movie is not.
1: Jump scares. 7 out of 11. They were there, and it was always a man appearing out of nowhere, and that is the real jump scare. Can I make this with an iPhone? 5 out of 11.
0: I think it would be a bit hard to create the gore. I'm not a master with a crossbow. And car scenes had a little bit of extra struggle, but the black magic of it all was very doable.
1: Screen Queens. 8 out of 11. Though they aren't. Truly iconic. They are pretty badass. And I believe that deserves a little something.
0: Ghost face. Six out of 11. Franny on the porch after being strangled. That's all I got.
1: That's good enough. Bringing us to the Queers Have Eyes custom rating. 11 out of 11. Richard, why'd we give it an 11?
0: Number one. Una got Lindsay a dildo.
1: Gay. Gay. Two. Franny uses a diva cup. Gay. Gay.
0: Three. Smoosh wants a girthy tree. Gay. Gay.
1: 4. Riley is a barista. Gay. Gay. 5.
0: Chris hates men. Gay. Gay.
1: 6. Frat dildo orders iced coffee in the winter. Gay. Gay.
0: 7. Franny kisses Riley on the forehead. Gay. Gay.
1: 8. Chris tends to Marty's wounds in the closet. Gay. Gay.
0: 9. The girls do a sexy dance in sexy costumes, a cappella. Gay. Gay.
1: 10. Riley grabs the founder's bust. Gay. Gay.
0: 11 professor gelson wears purple robes and monologues gay
1: bringing us to 11 out of 11 gay
0: this film is very feminist and very gay my friends
1: it's so good it's not so it's not like a great horror film i will say because the killer being the founder's goo magic was not scary.
0: It wasn't. I think the black magic was really hard to like, it was really hard to suspend my belief in the film whenever it got to that point. Like I thoroughly enjoyed the film up to that point. You know, it's a female directed film. I think we got a good view of the fear that women in college feel.
1: And as far as college women in horror films goes, like it's the most realistic portrayal I've ever seen. Even in Black Christmas 1974, they were in college, but they all seemed to be, like, 30? And... Definitely. And there was,
0: like, no sisterhood in 1974. Same in 2006. No, I they didn't... hated each
1: other in all 2006.
0: So it was nice to really see the sisterhood, and you could tell that it was through the lens of a female eye.
1: I mean, 20,000 extra points, though, for Carrie Elway's the hottest man who's ever lived. I... God, I hope I never meet him.
0: You know what, Chase? I hope you do meet him.
1: I hope for the people who have to pay my bail's sake <laughs> that I don't meet him.
0: Chase just suddenly becomes Barb the sexual predator, bisexual the second they
1: meet Carrie Always. Oh my god. But Marlene Dietrich would be proud. That
0: she would. Our queen, Marlene Dietrich. Okay.
1: The jump scares were pretty good. It was always the same, but like, you weren't expecting it until you were, because that. It happened every time.
0: But like I was saying, I thoroughly enjoyed the beginning of this film, and then it got to that scene in the car and she's like, it's black magic,
1: and I was like,
0: oh, this is going to be a bad ending to a good film.
1: I'm not surprised Chris didn't believe her, because that's fucking ridiculous. If that wasn't the plot of the movie, it was just stupid. It was dumb. It was straight up dumb. I wish it was better. I wish that it wasn't a horror film about the horrors of real life. I really wanted just some, like, horror. But I was never scared of the black goo. I was like, oh, it's turning all these men into men? men? Question mark?
0: Oh, they're using their strength <laughs> and they're they're trying to take over the world? I, I think I've seen this before.
1: I think I've seen this movie and I turn it off.
0: I do stand by our 6.5 out of 11 because
1: they were good reasons. It was Christmassy. That's something. It wasn't as Christmassy as the other black Christmas films, though. No. No. Number one, pretty Christmassy. Number two, extremely Christmassy. Christmas bursting out of every shot. This one, it's more like winter.
0: This is Christmas break. It's not it's specifically Christmas. No. There's Christmas decorations. There's
1: They don't even really talk about Christmas very much.
0: No, they talk about rape culture.
1: No, they, they mention Christmas once and they're like, yeah, I'm going to have to work on Christmas. And that's just like more... Reality horror. Cause we, we did. <laughs> we we did, did work on. Christmas. We did work on Christmas. It was fine. i Have blacked it out. Have we talked about how much I want to bang Carrie Elways?
0: I think the audience has heard enough about your love of Carrie Elways. Did you guys think know? It's time to wrap this up. Did you up. guys
1: know I love Carrie Elways? Oh my God! Some other Carrie Elways movies you should watch: Saw One, uh, Saw Seven, the Princess Bride, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I know so many more Glory there you go he's done like seven horror movies I just can't
0: believe it Black Christmas 2019 a good movie and a bad horror film and with that we are done beating the dead horse that is the Black Christmas franchise join us next year where we will start and end by discussing 1922's black and white horror classic Nosferatu
1: directed by F.W. Murnau an allegedly gay man who is the reason vampires have been queer for a century. Thanks for joining us on the Queers Have Eyes podcast, and if you're still here, stay queer and keep your eyes open.
0: Slay.